This is 25 Stories That Made MLS. I'm your host, Tula Rahman. I'm the guy that you know that loves posting charts about the game. And I'm the younger brother of your host, Nital Rahman, and nobody knows me. Yo, this is episode number one, man. Yeah, super exciting. We are in a very confined space Yeah. in my house here in Little Five Points. Atlanta. In Atlanta. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And uh, it's hot. It is hot. It is hot, but it's like ironically great for podcasting. Yeah, it's like a little closet with a bunch of paint, paint cans, and I don't know. It's weird, but it's good, and I, I'm, I'm liking it. Nice. And we're here uh, with our project, 25 Stories That Made MLS, um, in celebration of the 25th anniversary of MLS coming up next year. Crazy. I know. Yeah. And each one of these episodes are going to be 25 minutes long. Mm-hmm. So you can see a theme here. It's like 25, 25, 25. Oh, yeah. Good numbers. Yeah. And here is episode one. And I figure we might as well start in the beginning, right? Yeah. Why not? And so each one of these stories that we'll, we're going to tell you um, in this podcast series are usually stories that help kind of define what the league is. Um, but they might not be stories that the average person knows. Okay. So yeah. like uh, we wouldn't be talking about, uh, for instance, like... David Beckham coming over and you know, like I think enough people have read up enough things about that. To yeah, and, and David Beckham will definitely come up. I mean, he definitely share like there's a huge historic relevance in terms of what David Beckham brought to the league. But the story we'll probably share is like what led to David Beckham. Yeah, maybe something right. tangential to that. Exactly. All right. right? Cool. So these that are all sense. like dominoes that kind of fell in the right place that made the league today. That mm-hmm. I find personally interesting and hopefully. Other people will too. So cool. I figured today we can start right in the beginning. Mm-hmm. Um, and the beginning for me actually starts in 1984. Okay. Uh, that is before a World Cup in the U.S. Yeah, well That's before more, the World Cup well in the before. U.S. Because the World Cup in the U.S. is obviously 1994. Mm-hmm. Right? So this is 10 years and before that. And the league that. started two years after that. Yep. Okay. Yep. So this actually starts 10 years before that World Cup. And so I'm going to take you to um, Rose Bowl, Pasadena. Yep, hundred one thousand fans. Big venue, yeah. Yeah, hundred one thousand fans there to see an Olympics final between France and Brazil. I don't think we can get those numbers now. <laughs> yeah, it's right. Crazy. That's that's nuts. So hundred hundred thousand plus for an Olympics final between France uh, and Brazil. France and Brazil. Right, and like it's pretty remarkable because um, before that in the Olympics it was all. Um, amateur players. Right? Okay. Yeah. So you couldn't be a professional player. Olympics now obviously is a under twenty three tournament. Yeah. Right. With so, a couple players, with exception, but it's like what max three. Yeah, max yeah. three exactly. And now, right now in nineteen eighty four, back then it was the first time professionals were allowed to play, but it was a rule that it was no players could have more than five caps. So it wasn't like your biggest names possible. It was pretty much up and comers and the French and Brazilian national team. Okay. Which obviously are very, very good players, but to get 100,000 people in a stadium in America... Right, because the first thing you would think is like, oh, 100,000, there must be the star player present. Yeah, exactly. And it wasn't really like that. So um, France ended up winning the gold medal 2-0. Okay. Um, But the real winner was the person who put together the entire tournament. And it's a guy named Alan Rothenberg. He was a lawyer by trade. Um, and at that point, he was the commissioner of soccer for the Olympic Games. So he was the person who organized the entire tournament. He ended up getting over 1.5 million people to come to the Olympic soccer tournament, including 100,000 in the finals, 
hundred thousand for the third place game. That's one point five million for the entire event. Yeah. Specifically for soccer. Yep. In the Olympics. Yep. Um just for perspective, what are World Cup numbers are like three, four million? Yeah, I think I think your World Cup numbers are somewhere between like three or four million. Today. Yeah. Yeah. So that's that's huge. Yeah. Um, so he gets this entire tournament together. It's a hundred thousand people in the final. Um, and what the most important thing was that it opened the eyes of FIFA to show the potential of a U- U.S. soccer. Sure. Yeah. Or the soccer scene could be in the U.S. Mm-hmm. Right. And it's important to know the context of why it felt so remarkable at the time. It's because a year before that, mm-hmm. I should go rewind to 1983, um, Colombia is slated to to actually uh, host a 1986 World Cup, but it wasn't. But it wasn't Colombia. Right, right. It wasn't in Colombia, and the reason why it wasn't is because the financial burden of actually opening all the stadiums that were required for the World Cup and and the '86 World Cup is when it expanded from 16 to 24 teams. Okay, yeah, yeah. So they needed um, they needed more. They need more stadiums, right? Okay. And that's usually, if you read about World Cups now, mm-hmm. the reason why is that they aren't successful for the host country is because of the infrastructure that's required to build it, right? Right, and there are only a few countries that already have it built in. One of that is us. Exactly. But I'm assuming they went to Mexico next. Yes, so there's only a few countries in the world that can, you know, in three years' time, pull together a World Cup mm-hmm. and has the infrastructure already built to do it, U.S. soccer being one of those, right? Right. And they sensed an opportunity, and it was really important at that time because the main soccer league in the U.S. at that point is... NASL. NASL, North American Soccer League. Mm -hmm. And it was dying. I mean, it was running out of money. It was going bankrupt. So, like, the urgency of getting people interested in soccer was really, really high. Okay. And so they put together um, a committee uh, to bid for the World Cup now that Colombia wasn't going to do it. It was led by this guy named Warner Fricker. Um, he was a senior vice president at the time, and uh, he basically led the committee to, to put the bid together to try to get the 1986 World Cup. Okay. Urgency super high, right? So, like, if you can get this World Cup, you can get people interested in the league, you can save NASL, mm-hmm. um, and so, like, the stakes are super high. Like, yeah. We need to get this. Yeah. And he... Um, chooses to lead the bid on style over substance, right? So instead of him presenting it with other Federation officials okay. and really anchoring on the business side of why the U.S. would make a lot of sense... Which gets, is our best argument at the time. 100%. Yeah. He gets um, NASL stars like Paley and Beckenbauer to be the face of the bid. Right. And, right, okay. Yeah. yeah. And, and the other thing about NASL is that it was actually against FIFA rules in terms of how to play soccer at, at that point, too. Right, so it's not exactly, like, a model that that fits, right? right. Like, um, and, and, yeah, I guess he tried to be flashy, and that, um, guessing, backfired. It backfired spectacularly. I mean, they FIFA cited general concerns about soccer, how many people were interested in it because NASL was failing, mm-hmm. uh, pointed at kind of the soccer culture in general, didn't follow the global rules of the game, um, and doubted basically the American public's interest in general of hosting such a massive tournament. Um, so in essence, like Fricker's gamble of going oh, with style, leading with stars, really backfired. Um, and to put like 
you know, a giant slap to our face. They awarded it to, to Mexico. Mexico our rival, yeah. And Mexico just hosted a World Cup in 1970. In 1970. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, and to, you know, put more salt in the wound, um, as they say, the gamble actually led to U.S. soccer being over a million dollars in debt and close to bankruptcy. So it cost like basically a million dollars to put to even together. run a bid. Yeah. yeah, to even run it. Yeah. So later out in in '84, so this is a year mm-hmm. later, mm-hmm. NSL folds, right? The U.S. soccer bid failed spectacularly. And but we have Rothenberg running. Rothenberg this. ran okay. the Olympic Games, and it showed FIFA. Whoa, hold up! Like there is an audience for yeah, this in the U.S. A it's a giant kind of white space that mm-hmm. they haven't been able to penetrate yet. Um, there's a market. It just seems like maybe the federation and maybe the league was not managed properly, right? That's basically okay. was a key yeah. takeaway. Um, so amazingly, after all of that, right? So Fricker's gamble kind of backfires. Um, in nineteen, um, I think eighty-eight, um, he's made the president of U.S. Soccer. So he, even though he kind of failed in the bid. Yeah, I'm. You know, I looked. I looked up a lot of research to figure out, like, how he became the president after all of this. Um, I could not find it. Okay. Yeah. Maybe may, maybe lack of competition. We don't know. Who knows? Who yeah, knows? Who knows? Okay. Um, but, like, literally no top league. Right? Mm-hmm. So NASL is gone. No professional soccer, really, in, in the U.S. No, the U.S. men's soccer team is, like, non-existent, basically, because there's nowhere to play. And we have no World Cup coming in. There's really only one choice that he had, right? And it's mm-hmm. basically to succeed where he failed, right? Right. So he failed in getting in 1986. There's another kind of um, bidding process that's there to try to get the uh, either the 1990 or the 1994 World Cup. Okay. And this time he has over a year to prepare. So last time he had a few weeks. This time he has a year. And he really anchors now on the root of business professionalism. Which is a tactic we still use to this day. Yeah. Right? Our, our, our infrastructure is kind of everything. Right. We already have the stadiums, and it's a big country. Right. Accommodations, right? Hotels, yep. all that. All that stuff. Like, everything you need to host a massive tournament where mm-hmm. millions of people are coming into yeah. your country, like, the U.S. has that, and it's a huge advantage, and you should really anchor your bid on that. And, you know, it takes money to make a bid. And um, this time around, instead of kind of borrowing money or putting U.S. soccer into further debt, he raised money through corporate sponsorships for the $1.5 million okay. required yeah. for the bid. Um, and anchoring, again, on infrastructure, again, because the World Cup is expanding to 24 teams, right? So yep. you need you need the infrastructure. Um, but the biggest difference, I think, wasn't necessarily just like the bid itself. is the fact that Rothenberg threw this really successful tournament. Yeah. They have something to look earlier, at, right? right? In in 1984, and um, the people in charge were thinking, you know, this is a possible thing for us to be able to pull off, and, mm-hmm. and Rothenberg proved it. I mean, Fricker himself said, "There's a strong desire by FIFA to have the World Cup come to the United States. A lot of people see the United States as a big white spot on the map of the soccer world. Basically, it's untapped potential. Yeah, and so FIFA saw this, and FIFA saw the real." realistic ability to execute it through Rothenberg's tournament and Werner Fricker basically um, you know anchored on I think the basics which is the professionalism and the infrastructure that's already there and it paid off right so on July 4th 1988 
in the Movenpick Hotel in Zurich, uh, Switzerland, FIFA awards the United States the right to host the 1994 World Cup. Yeah, on Independence Day. Yeah, I think when they announced it, it was going to be <laughs> on Independence Day. I think like everyone the, was just really hype. Yeah, everyone was hype, but also like every other. Could you imagine the other countries? Like, could you, like, could you imagine if they didn't get the bid? <laughs> <happened? laughs> yeah, that'd be bad. I think all the other countries assumed the U.S. is getting it. Okay, and, um, so they get it. They get and the one bid. of the one of the caveats is you know FIFA's like you need to start another new first division. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. Okay, so the stipulation then is start a first division soccer league yep. and kick that off. Yep. Okay. And um, a year later, you know, 1989, the U.S. men's soccer team kind of um, does the shot around the world. Yeah, shot heard around the world. Yeah, and uh, they qualify for the 1990 World mm-hmm. Cup. And the same year, the youth team finished fourth in the 1989 FIFA World Youth Championships, which you now know as the U-20 World Championships. So this is all happens in a year. We get the World Cup bid yeah. successfully done. We um, qualify for our first World Cup. Since 1950, right? Yeah, we showcase that our youth talent is actually pretty good. We rank fourth in, in the youth championships. Mm-hmm. And this is after a wildly unsuccessful bid and, and the professional league falling apart, right? Right. And part of the success on at least the bid getting accepted was Rothenberg's tournament in, in 1984. So this is usually where I think, you know, you would pause and be like, all right, Rothenberg kicked it off, but Fricker brought it home, and now he's the hero. You know, we should build a statue of him to actually save U.S. soccer. Um, But it's not, right? So this is, fast forward one more year, 1990, um, and it's obvious to a lot of people that Fricker um, was actually failing at the hardest part of this, which is not actually getting the bid, but organizing Uh, Yeah, making it happen. Yeah. Okay. He already hired and fired uh, people to lead the organizing committee. There mm-hmm. was never a director of marketing. Um, which oh my led god, to... that's that's your job basically. Yeah, yeah, that's what I do for a living. All right. um, <laughs> but it, like it led to sponsors dropping out. Right. So Chiquita Banana. Chiquita one, Banana. Yeah, was one of the main sponsors. <laughs> no more bananas. Yeah. Sport. Oh man. But like uh, bananas, most importantly, money. Right? Yeah, so money yeah, 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 was, yeah. To keep the keep like staffing going mm-hmm. like having a volunteer organization to be able to like procure the stadiums to get sales going i mean it's a full organization that needs to be running in order to make um a world cup happen um and so you had sponsors dropping out because like the right people weren't put in place to actually execute it right and you know one thing that spooks fifa more than anything else is like shaky finances um, of course. So, like, they're looking at U.S. So, they already know. They already know. Yeah. Okay. And so, what, so, what happens after that? Right. So, the reps in, in Zurich, where FIFA is uh, headed, who do they call? They call our boy Rothenberg. Rothenberg. Yeah. Got it. And so, Rothenberg, at this point, is, like, well away from soccer, right? So, he actually, after, you know, um, having an NASL team as an owner, selling that team, becoming the commissioner of soccer for the Olympics... Mm-hmm. Um, Steps away from soccer, becomes the president of the L.A. Clippers. Um, okay. Steps down from that role to be the president of the California State Bar. I mean, and, and running basically a firm. Um, and so even though he was like years away from soccer, FIFA originally gave the bid knowing that it could be done based upon something that Rothenberg did. So they call him up, right? Mm-hmm. And they're basically stating discontent. They're like, you know, this is all messed up. We need someone to overlook this. At the same time, so because the sponsors are dropping out, Fricker's U.S. soccer is bleeding money. Okay. 
Yeah. Yeah. I feel like I know where you're going with this. Right. So All they right. panic. Because it's always, it's always TV. TV. Okay. Right? So how do you yeah. get money? You get TV. Yeah, you sell the broadcasting rights. Exactly. And so um, they go to NBC to sell the broadcasting rights early okay. to try to get money into the organization to actually make the World Cup Keep happen. it going. Yeah. They do this without FIFA's consent. Mm. So I think if there's another thing that you don't want to do with FIFA... Is doing anything without their permission. Yeah, especially when it comes to money. And <laughs> the potential of taking money out of their pocket. Um, so that happens, and now our guys in Zurich really let Rothenberg know. They were like, hey, in 1990, World Cup's happening in Italy. When the World Cup happens, we're bringing U.S. soccer leadership into um, to talk with us. And if it's not going any better, we're going to pull the rights of the World Cup in 1994. Um, unless someone, hint, hint, our guy Rothenberg, um, steps in and runs the entire show. Um, okay, so yeah. So what, what, what happens next? So think about this, right? So like this World Cup is the basis of everything going right in, mm-hmm. back in, in the world of soccer in the States. We get a World Cup, we get a new league. We just qualified for the World Cup. To get that pulled from us right now would be huge. Yeah, devastating. devastating, right? right? And so um, there was, uh, in August 1990, a month after the U.S. appearance in the World Cup, and two years after winning the bid, um, Werner Fricker faced the um, unthinkable, and which is an incumbent president. So Fricker, just to give you a little background on him, he's a German-American, he's a through and through soccer guy. I mean, he played on the U.S. soccer Olympic team. Wait, we're talking about a, we're talking about an ex U.S. soccer player. Yeah, lifelong soccer. All right, player. so I had no idea Lives who Fla- Fricker was. Yeah. Okay, so you were talking about an ex player. Ex player, uh, from Germany, but also like uh, ends up selling in Philadelphia. Plays for the local Philadelphia clubs. Plays for the U.S. soccer um, Olympics team. Is like a player becomes like heavily involved in the organization, climbs up the ramp to be the senior vice president, to lead the bid that fails, and then eventually becomes president. And there just happened to be an election. He's in the, Yeah, there's an election in 1990 yeah. when everything's falling apart, and he's being challenged by a guy who is a lawyer in L.A., in <laughs> Rothenberg. After okay. he got the rights to the World Cup, after the U.S. men's has qualified for a World right. Cup and just played right. in a World Cup, he's being challenged by basically an outsider. Yeah, he just he basically fixed all his sins, and now he's looking at yeah. Rothenberg, which is the one guy that FIFA does trust. Yes, that's exactly okay. right. And he failed yep. to realize, like, one, FIFA trusts him, and literally everything is banking on this World Cup happening. Yeah. Right? So yeah. all the people within U.S. soccer, even though Fricker is a U.S. soccer guy, and he's been there forever, and he's like a soccer guy through and yeah, through. Yeah, they're going to bet on who FIFA wants. They're going to bet on who FIFA wants and a person who can actually run it. And and to be fair, like I think a lot of people in U.S. soccer thought he was not doing a great job in actually organizing the okay. event. Right? So um, there was actually another guy running for it in, in the U.S. soccer, but... Rothenberg wins by a landslide, like with nearly sixty percent of the vote in the first round. Between between three. Between three. Well, yeah, so sixty is considerably high yeah. for three candidates. So you have Werner Fricker, the man who brought the World Cup to the U.S., mm-hmm. kicked off the throne only two years after winning the bid right. by an outsider. This is amazing, right? Yep. So Rothenberg got quickly to work. I mean, the first thing he does is basically ease the pressure of. 
of running uh, simultaneously a World Cup and then trying to start a new league. And the way he does that is convinces FIFA, hey, logically we need to um, run a successful World Cup first. That will gain people to be interested in soccer again. And then we'll use the resources and interest in that to actually open up the league later. This is like almost basic supply and demand, right? A little bit, a yeah. A little bit, like just, just prove that it can be there first. Yeah. Give it some time, then start it. Yeah. And so it allows him to actually focus only on first organizing the 94 World Cup. Right. He gets like major sponsors like Mars and Coca-Cola to sign up. Um, and by far the most impactful is that, you know, one thing he learned in the Olympics tournament is that he needs to get the biggest kind of venues and treat the World Cup as big as possible. Mm-hmm. And so in doing that, um, he set up not just like the um, uh, a successful tournament, but honestly the most financially successful World Cup of all time. So he got over 3.6 million yeah, people. Yeah, yeah. and I, I tell people all the time, I... I casual soccer watchers, fans, whatever. I I have said many times, the 94 World Cup in the U.S., financially, one of the most, if not the most successful, even till today. Today. Yep. And nobody really takes me seriously or believes me when I say that, when we're talking about a casual fan. Listen, it it, it made over one billion in profits. Yeah, it's insane. Yeah, and... So it kind of played out exactly how Rothenberg vision, right? It's mm-hmm. like, you know, a huge tournament, huge success, and now they have a, a bit of cash there. So right before the actual tournament, he gets a bunch of people together to start thinking about the league. Um, some people that you might know, like Mark Abbott, makes a business plan for it, Sunil Gulati, Todd Durbin. Yep. Um, and they realize the most important thing for the league is actually getting the right funders and the right owners behind it because they need money basically to run it. Um, and so the investor group that actually came in together was a lot of the connections that were made through the World Cup. Mm-hmm. So one of the places that we were running the World Cup in was Foxborough Stadium, which links you into... Kraft family. Link you in the Kraft family, yeah. right? Um, Rothenberg's law firm did a lot of uh, work with Phil Anschultz, who um, you might know as Uncle Phil or the owner of um, AEG in the LA Galaxy. Okay. At one point owned like half the league. Um, and then the last one of the major kind of owners that were kind of the founding fathers of the league was the Hunt family, who mm-hmm. owned the Kansas City Chiefs, but yep. Lamar Hunt, famously like a lifelong soccer guy, owned an NSL team, but also like went to every single World Cup. So all these connections kind of came together in order to make um, the owners, like the, the core group, along with um, the, the key people from the league side, along with the money and the interest raised from the World Cup, all under the vision of, of Alan Rothenberg. Um, and that's how MLS kind of happened. So, you know... Um, yeah, I think it's a valid argument to say without the success of the 84 Olympics, FIFA does not have a good model to look at to say, hey, there might be a market here. Maybe things can change. Yeah. And, I mean... And, especially considering the stipulation, hey, start a league. If yeah. we give you this World Cup. Yeah, and start a league with a vision of being big. Yeah. You know, and you were here for MLS Cup 2018, right? Yeah. No, I was at Mercedes-Benz Stadium. I felt so lucky to witness that in person. I've always wanted to watch an MLS Cup, and I finally got to. 
Yeah. yeah it's amazing. And I think, I mean, that was... That was like 73, 73 something thousand. Yeah, fans. over 70,000 yeah. fans. So seeing a spectacle that's MLS. And I think that is the exact vision of what Alan Rothberg wanted of soccer in this league. And it's come to fruition a solid 35 years after his 1984 Summer Olympics tournament. And that is the story of 1984. Story number one in the books. And how it started off the first domino that became the league that we all love right now, which is Major League Soccer. Thanks for listening to episode one, 1984. And I just looked up on Wikipedia, Alan Rothenberg, and turns out MLS Cup was named after him for the first couple of years. <laughs> Learn something every day. Yeah. Um, we had four key sources for this podcast. Um, the first one was how USA was chosen to host the World Cup by Michael Lewis, an uh, article for The Guardian. How U.S. Won the World Cup by Stephen Berkowitz for the Washington Post. Swiss Rolled, How Alan Rothenberg Became U.S. Soccer President by Tim Fro for Holler Magazine. And An Oral History of Major League Soccer Frenzied First Season by Doug Seabor for Complex Sports. Um, definitely check those out for the sources. And definitely check out Wikipedia if you just don't know things in general. That's a great piece of <laughs> advice. Uh, check us out uh, for episode two.